Hello, and welcome to HLAW's Legal History Podcast. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today we will be discussing Law in the Reconstruction Era with Eric Foner, DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University. Dr. Foner, welcome to the show. Uh, Very nice to talk to you. To begin the interview, could you start with the state of American law at the federal, state, and local levels at the end of four years of civil war? (laughs) <laughs> well, that's obviously a pretty complicated question, and in fact, uh, one might almost say that the whole question of the state of law was up for grabs uh, at the end of the Civil War, because um, everybody knew that slavery had been destroyed by the war, although its final demise didn't come until December 1865 with the ratification of the 13th Amendment. But slavery had been so deeply embedded in the Constitution, in federal law, in local law, state law in the South, that nobody quite knew what the consequences of the end of slavery would be. Um, What was going to be the status of these um, formerly slave people, now free? Uh, What about all the protections that had been, you know, had been built into the law in the South uh, for the institution of slavery? What about the Dred Scott decision of the Supreme Court? of 1857, which had virtually nationalized the institution of slavery and declared that black people could not be citizens of the United States. So I think the the point really is that the question of law was up for grabs. What would be the, you might say, the uh, intersection, or that is to say the relationship between local law, often based on the common law and on um, you know, definitions of status and things like that and inequality. What would be the connection of that to laws that many people now wanted to pass and did in fact pass trying to establish equality regardless of race as a basic principle of, um, of American law? So, um, you know, this was one of the major questions of Reconstruction, the reconstruction of the law at all levels to take into account the consequences of the Civil War and the end of slavery. Okay. Could you tell us now about the Reconstruction Amendments to the United States Constitution? Well, of course, there were three of what we call the Reconstruction Amendments. Each of them requires a long answer, so I'll just give you a brief one now, and we can go into greater detail. The 13th Amendment, uh, approved by Congress in January 1865, declared ratified at the end of 1865, uh, abolished the institution of slavery. Uh, it introduced the word slavery for the first time into the U.S. Constitution. The original Constitution had included uh, clauses dealing with slavery, but they did not use the word slave or slavery. They spoke of other persons or um, you know, uh, persons bound to labor or things like that. Uh, now you have the institution of slavery mentioned for the first time in the very act of abolishing it. But of course, the 13th Amendment settled the question of slavery, but it raised the question of what follows slavery, what it was going to be the status of these four million people who were now being moved from slave to free status. The 14th Amendment, which was approved by Congress in 1866 and ratified in 1868, uh, in a sense, moves past the 13th Amendment and tries to establish the principles of citizenship, of equal protection of the law, changes the relations between this federal government and the states, and also deals with many other issues which are probably less significant today, things like the Confederate debt and the 
uh, right of uh, Confederate leaders to hold office and um, issues like that. Um, the 14th Amendment is long, complicated, and uh, tries to deal with many of the questions that arose out of the Civil War. And finally, the 15th Amendment, which was ratified in 1870, um, bars the states from uh, discriminating in voting on the basis of race. In other words, it, um, it's basically intended to enfranchise, uh, to put into the Constitution, the enfranchisement of uh, black men uh, in, in the South and indeed throughout the entire country. So uh, these are three fundamental changes in the Constitution. And in effect, we should, you know, some people call this era the second founding, that the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments so changed the Constitution that they really created a new Constitution rather than just, uh, you know, uh, changing minor aspects of it. How were former Confederate soldiers treated under the law? Were any convicted of treason or war crimes? Uh, nothing happened to Confederate soldiers. Uh, they went home. Uh, of course, they had suffered enormously in the war, their families, their region. But they went home. No, no Confederate soldier was put on trial or punished because of having fought uh, for the Confederacy. Um, the vast majority of them uh, had no uh, legal disabilities whatsoever. They had to take an oath of um, sort of allegiance. Uh, President Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln, said uh, Southerners had to take an oath of allegiance to the United States, uh, and then they would get all their rights back, with the exception, he said, of the very wealthy, those who owned uh, $20,000 or more worth of property. They had to um, get personal pardons from the president, and most of them did. Commandant Wirtz, the uh, head of Andersonville Prison, uh, where many, uh, prisoner of war camp in Georgia, where many uh, Union soldiers died in terrible circumstances, he was put on trial and actually executed after the war. He was the one Confederate executed, and that was for what you might call today war crimes, the mistreatment of prisoners, not for having served the Confederacy. Now, leaders of the Confederacy, many of them, including generals and others, were uh, deprived of the right to hold office for a period of time after the Civil War. In some states, they were um, temporarily barred from voting. So there were some political disabilities. They varied from state to state. But the fact is that the vast majority of those who fought to the Confederacy did not suffer any legal consequences as a result of that. Could you discuss the Black Codes, laws passed by Southern states to restrict the freedom of black Americans? Well, when President Andrew Johnson succeeded Lincoln uh, after Lincoln's assassination in 1865, he set in motion what we call presidential reconstruction, uh, establishing new governments in the uh, Southern states, uh, basically controlled by whites. I mean, blacks had no political rights at that point. And... Um, these new governments, uh, in late 1865, early 1866, enacted a series of laws which came to be called the Black Codes, which were basically meant to regulate the former slave population. But they also applied to those who'd been free, free blacks from before the Civil War, too. And um, basically, you know, in some ways they recognized basic rights. For example, the right to have your marriage legalized. Uh, slave marriages existed, but they had no legal a basis before the Civil War. Uh, they uh, generally allowed the former slaves to own property, things like that, but they were mostly restrictive. Blacks could not testify in court against white people. 
they and most important, basically, it was an, they were an attempt to put black people back to work on the plantations through very strict vagrancy laws. Uh, they said that any black adult uh, who didn't have a job working for a white person uh, at the beginning of the year would be considered a vagrant and fined, and if they couldn't pay their fine, they would be uh, basically auctioned off to any white employer who would pay the fine, and they would have to work off their uh, fine uh, working for the white employer. Uh, they made it illegal to leave your job by the uh, during the year, in other words, they attempted to use the power of law to reinforce the plantation system without slavery. Uh, these laws uh, alarmed, well, they outraged black people because they were a severe restriction on their freedom, and uh, they violated the free labor principles of most northerners who felt that people ought to, you know, compete in the labor market for jobs. If you don't like your job, you can move and get another job. Uh, you're not legally required to have a job working for a white person, uh, things like that. So uh, the Black Codes really discredited the Reconstruction program of uh, Andrew Johnson because they suggested that white Southerners were not really ready to accept the reality of emancipation. Could you tell us a bit about the Freedmen Bureau courts? Well, at the very end of Lincoln's first administration in um March 1865, Congress passed and he signed the bill establishing the Freedmen's Bureau, which was a remarkable experiment in law in the 19th century. The Freedmen's Bureau was to oversee the transition from slavery to freedom, as well as assisting what they called white refugees, whites in the South who had, had to flee their land and things like that. Um, they uh, also the Freedmen's Bureau had a, had many, many responsibilities. They set up schools for blacks. They uh, tried to regulate the labor system to encourage blacks to go back to work, but under fair contracts. Uh, they re regularized uh, marriages among uh, former slaves. Um, they distributed uh, uh, food to needy people and medical care. And they had this court system. The Freedmen's Bureau could remove cases from local courts where blacks were not allowed to testify. In other words, if the courts did not treat African Americans equally, the Freedmen's Bureau could simply adjudicate those cases. They were, they, the aim was to protect blacks against violence. There was a lot of violence after the war against the former slaves. Did the Freedmen's Bureau courts work? Well, they had an enormous responsibility. It was impossible for them to do everything, but they did, you know, in many cases try to get a modicum of justice for uh, African-Americans in the South, which they could not possibly get in the uh, state and local courts, which at that time were completely uh, dominated by whites. Blacks could not serve on juries. They could not testify against whites, etc. So the courts were completely biased, and at least the Freedmen's Bureau courts were able to punish whites uh, who committed acts of violence against uh, former slaves. These, the Freedmen's Bureau courts were separate from the civil courts of the states. There were also military courts uh, functioning in some of these states. The whole legal system in the first few years of Reconstruction was very complicated. The army was there with provost marshal courts. They adjudicated some cases. The Freedmen's Bureau adjudicated cases. The new government set up by Andrew Johnson adjudicated cases. So the legal situation was pretty complicated. Uh, eventually, it, once new and better governments are put into place in the South, then it becomes more regularized. And the Freedmen's Bureau goes out of existence in 1870, so their courts disappear at that time. Did any agents 
who were part of the Freedmen's Bureau, serve as advocates for black Americans in more traditional local and federal courts? I think they did, yes. I think uh, Freedmen's Bureau agents would observe what happened in local courts because, you know, often they preferred local courts to deal with cases involving blacks, but they wanted to make sure that justice was actually being served, that a black person convicted of a crime was being sentenced to more or less the same you know, punishment as a white person convicted of the same crime. Uh, you know, so uh, they did act as advocates for blacks, and they observed what happened in local courts, but they were able to remove these cases if they to their own courts if they felt that, um, you know, that they were not being conducted properly. Okay, that's a fascinating area of law that I think a lot of people don't know much about. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the rules were complicated and, and uh, you know, almost uh, had to be invented as you went along because there were no precedents for this Freedmen's Bureau and its court system uh, in the legal system before the Civil War. Uh, you alluded to this in uh, our last question, but could you discuss how martial law manifested itself in the South? Well, the army, of course, uh, when when the uh, end of the Civil War came in the uh, spring of 1865, uh, there were no real functioning civil governments in the South at that point, and so the army conducted, you know, business under martial law. Uh, pretty soon, as I said, President uh, Andrew Johnson created new governments, and the army. You know, martial law is not something the army actually is that interested in pursuing in many cases. Um, and so the army courts began to, uh, you know, wither away. But then in 1867, Congress enacted what is called the military reconstruction laws, uh, which sort of set in motion creating new, the, the Andrew Johnson governments were just basically no good, to put it in a lot, non-legal framework. And Congress established, you know, set in motion establishing new governments in the South with black men voting for the first time, really, in American history in large numbers. But the army was to oversee this. So the, the, the army, the South was again put under martial law in the spring of 1867, and the army was uh, to monitor this and to set in motion having new elections and that kind of thing. So again, uh, martial law functioned in the South for a while, but then by 1868, new governments were set up, and so it uh, it diminished and disappeared. Do you think the Confederacy's creation and then loss of legitimacy affected the way Southerners viewed law and legal change in the post-war years? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think the problem is that most white Southerners were simply not, you know, mentally able to quite come to terms with the vast changes that were implied by the end of slavery. Uh, perhaps this is just understandable. People living in one society and suddenly the foundation of that society is destroyed, it's very hard to just sort of pick up and say, okay, now I've come to terms with the new situation. So um, on the one hand, uh, most Southern whites, I think, uh, came to accept, obviously, that slaves were free. They understood that and that they were entitled to basic legal rights, civil rights, uh, the right to go to court, the right to own property, the right to be protected against violence, things like that, to choose your occupation. 
where they found it difficult, I think, was to accept black political power. The giving of the right to vote to black men, and then many held office in the late 1860s or 1870s, was uh, a political legal change that most white Southerners were simply not prepared to accept. They really did, didn't. They really thought only white people should govern the South. And so that caused a great deal of problem. And of course, you know, a generation later, uh, the white South took the right to vote when they were able to do so, took the right to vote away from the vast majority of black men in the South. So that, you know, that legal change of voting and office holding on the part of African Americans was something that was just very difficult for most whites to accept in the South. Uh, most of what we've talked about so far makes it seem a little bit like a legal Wild West in America after the Civil War ended. Um, do you think the legal turmoil in the Reconstruction era, era created spaces for normally marginalized people to express popular conceptions of justice and have a greater influence on law and government? Uh, yeah, I think that's a good question. I think certainly the, there, it, I don't know if it was a Wild West, but there was great uncertainty about the legal situation. And by the way, there's a new book by uh, the historian Stephen Hahn called A Nation Without Borders that sort of extends this principle to the West at the same time. There were places where, you know, the legal status of Native Americans was up for grabs. Um, it, the, the whole question of law was uh, very much in flux in the mid-19th century. Citizenship rights, who who was a citizen, what rights they had, who could vote, things like that. Um, but in the South, yes, and the uh, the legal changes did open the door for particularly African Americans, obviously, to claim rights and to uh, assert rights that they had not been able to exercise very effectively before the Civil War. And of course, the constitutional amendments uh, placed the federal government on the side of basic equality before the law for all Americans, regardless of race. Now, that was not so easy to enforce in many circumstances. The federal government was, you know, didn't, there was no Department of Justice until 1870. There was no Federal Bureau of Investigation. The federal courts were uh, quite weak in many ways. Uh, and so enforcing those principles depended on the states, basically. And um, as long as uh, you had these Republican Reconstruction governments in power, the, many of these principles were enforced. But then uh, through violence and other methods, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, etc., extra-legal methods, uh, Reconstruction was overthrown, and a new system of legal white supremacy was put into place in the 1880s and 1890s. So, you know, there were gains, and then there were losses uh, afterwards. Do you think popular print had a significant impact on law in the Reconstruction era? I don't know if the popular print had a lot of impact on law. It certainly had an impact on public consciousness, which I suppose then affects legal uh, conditions. Uh, you know, this was we didn't have the Internet back then. Uh, no, the president was not sending out messages on Twitter. But... Um, the you know these uh mass circulation magazines and newspapers were widely circulated and uh did have a big effect now most of the press was very partisan you had republican newspapers democratic newspapers for the first time you had a significant number of african american newspapers being published in reconstruction so public consciousness was really uh, up for grabs and was these many of these newspapers were very widely read 
uh, and uh, did affect uh, you know political thought very very dramatically at the time. Okay. Could you discuss the slaughterhouse cases and the impact the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Fourteenth Amendment had upon civil rights law? Well, the the fourteenth, the first section, the most important section of the Fourteenth Amendment declares first that anybody born in the United States is a citizen of the United States. That's what we call birthright citizenship. Uh, of course, this gave citizenship to black Americans. Uh, the Dred Scott decision before the Civil War had said only whites could be citizens. Uh, and then it went on, go on to say that these citizens are to enjoy, uh, that no state can deprive these citizens of the equal protection of the law or the privileges and immunities of citizenship or the due process of law. Now, of course, those are vague phrases. They're not, they're not very specific. What are the privileges or immunities of, of citizens? What is due process of law? Uh, and it was up to the courts and Congress to uh, interpret these. And the first Supreme Court case really interpreting the meaning of the privileges and immunities clause was the Slaughterhouse case, uh, which was decided in 1873. Um, this actually had to do with white people, uh, the, the, not uh, former slaves. Uh, Louisiana had passed a law creating a monopoly of butchering uh, livestock. You know, in New Orleans, this was a public health measure. The 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 um, slaughterhouses in New Orleans were sending garbage into the streets and into the river and smelled horrible and were unsanitary, and so they created a central slaughterhouse, which butchers had to work at. They couldn't do it privately and the butchers white butchers soon that this was a violation of the 14th amendment they were being deprived of their right to choose a livelihood which was one of the privileges and immunities of citizens of the united states this went up to the supreme court and by a five to four decision the court uh, rejected the butchers plea uh... and uh, justice miller who wrote the uh, majority opinion said you know actually uh, this the right to labor is not one of the privileges and immunities of citizens the 14th amendment was meant to help the former slaves it didn't have anything to do with these white butchers and but it left most of the rights of citizens in the hands of the states the what are the privileges and immunities of citizens he said well they're those things that come from the federal government the, your relationship to the federal government such as the right to travel on interstate waterways or the right to protection on the high seas from pirates, or uh, the right to go to Washington and petition the government if you want to. Well, obviously, most of those were not of great importance to most former slaves. They weren't on the high seas or anything. Uh, most of the other rights of citizens remain within the states, he said. And so it's up to the state. The federal government can't just be constantly overturning state laws. This seems like a pretty good law to uh, uh, health you know, a health measure for New Orleans, and, um, you know, it doesn't deprive anyone of their rights, really. So on the one hand, he said, the real aim of the 14th Amendment is to protect the rights of black people, but on the other hand, he defined those rights so narrowly that really uh, the 14th Amendment had almost no bearing whatsoever, and people were still required to look to the states, not the federal government, for uh, the basic protection of their rights. So now, the fact is that uh, Miller, the justice, was upholding Reconstruction. This was a law passed by a mixed-race legislature in Louisiana, a Reconstruction legislature, 
And um, he was saying, this is a good law. What's the problem here? Um, but later on, the narrow definition of rights, once white Democrats got back in control of southern states, then this narrow definition of rights uh, was really a problem because the if the states just you know kept taking away rights from black people, and the court said, well look, it's not a federal problem. It's up to the states to determine what rights are. So, the slaughterhouse case was not intended to, you know, kind of destroy the Fourteenth Amendment, but in conjunction with subsequent cases, it made the Fourteenth Amendment weaker and weaker and weaker in terms of the original purpose of protecting the basic legal equality of uh, African Americans. Could you talk about vigilante justice in the Reconstruction era? How does vigilantism relate to traditional justice? Well, you know, the Reconstruction era is important in this regard. It's, it's the first major outbreak of terrorism in American history, one might almost say. You know, uh, terrorism didn't begin in 2001 with... Um, you know, 9-11. Uh, in Reconstruction, you had uh, terrorist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan, like the White League. They had various names in different places. Um, using extra-legal violence, vigilante justice, if you want to call it that, but there's no justice involved, uh, assaulting people, murdering people. The Ku Klux Klan and groups like that probably killed more Americans in Reconstruction than Al-Qaeda killed in the early part of the 20th, 21st century. Um, and it was meant to restore white supremacy, to intimidate blacks, present, prevent them from voting, punish those who were political leaders, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it posed a major problem for the legal system. What do you do when you have this kind of virtual insurrection in certain uh, parts of the South? And Congress responded in 1870 and 71 with what they called the Enforcement Acts, which authorized the president to declare martial law or at least suspend the writ of habeas corpus and to send federal marshals and troops into these areas, which President Grant did in 1871 and crushed the Klan temporarily. Unfortunately, it came back again a few years later. Uh, but it's certainly this kind of uh, terrorist violence poses a serious problem for the legal system. How can, it, can the legal system function when you have this massive terrorism going on? Could you talk a little bit more about the Klan hearings, uh, the trials, and their effectiveness? Yeah, Grant and his attorney general, Amos Ackerman, and uh, Benjamin Bristow, the solicitor general, uh, you know, they took direct actions with federal marshals arresting people in some areas, uh, and in, North, in South Carolina actually sending federal troops to arrest leaders of the Klan. Uh, not that many people were convicted. What they basically did was go after the higher-ups and try to put them in jail, uh, and then they let the lower-level people off on the promise to behave themselves uh, henceforth. But they were very effective in 1872. They really did. Uh, these trials in 1872 were effective. You can't just judge it by the number of people convicted. They They really crushed the uh, uh, infrastructure of the Ku Klux Klan, and 1872 was probably the most peaceful year in the Reconstruction period in uh, the South. But the problem was, for complicated reasons, Northern willingness to support this kind of intervention begins to wane, and by the mid-1870s, you have violence again rearing its head without much of a federal um, response to it. Do you think women had more influence upon law 
in the Reconstruction period than they had previously? Well, you know, the, 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 the Reconstruction era raised very directly the legal status of women and the political status of women, because when you put equality into the Constitution, you know, the, the Equal Protection Clause is the first time the principle of equality among citizens is in our Constitution. The original Constitution doesn't talk about that. And so how did that apply to women? Were women entitled now to all the same legal rights as men? Now, remember, at the very beginning, I mentioned how do you kind of juxtapose uh, local law based on the common law with constitutional law based on equality? Because in the common law of coverture, women are inferior to men. I mean, legally speaking, a married woman loses her legal personality in many ways, and her rights are exercised through her husband. And, you know, at this point, married women could not control their own wages. They could not sign a contract without their husband's approval. They could not vote in any state. Um, and so what happens to this principle of equal protection of the law? And those cases went up to the Supreme Court. Bradwell v. Illinois decided, I think, at the same time as the Slaughterhouse case, 1873, the same month, uh, where Illinois had a law saying only um, men can be lawyers. Women can't be lawyers. And Myra Bradwell, who studied law and wanted to join the bar, was was prohibited in Illinois, and she sued that this is a violation of the equal protection of the law. What is, what is this? You can't have law saying men can do this and women can't. And the Supreme Court said, no, sorry, Myra, you can't be a lawyer. Why? Because nature has determined that women should only do certain things, and being a lawyer is not one of them. So if it's, a, it's, if it's an edict of nature, then it's not really inequality, you see, the, the legal thing. This is ridiculous, and um, but nonetheless, that, that that was, you know, so the, the the women made some legal gains in Reconstruction, particularly there were more and more states passed law giving working women control of their own wages, whether they're married or not. But um, but by and large, the legal status of women remained very unequal during the whole Reconstruction period. What are the long-ranging ramifications of the way law was molded and enforced in the Reconstruction era? Well, I, I, on the one hand, of course, as I said, our Constitution was rewritten, and these are still, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are still being debated today. They're part of our political agenda. I mean, you pick up your newspaper, you've got 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment issues right today in our political and legal world. The 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery except for those duly convicted of crime, they can be subjected to involuntary servitude and you know that's part of the basis of massing you know legal foundation of mass incarceration today the 14th amendment who is a citizen that's a big question as you know in our previous election uh what does it mean equal protection of the law uh this is debated before the supreme court every single uh, term the right to vote is now under attack in many states the 50 you know the voting rights act which was enacted under the 15th Amendment, was eviscerated by the Supreme Court a few years ago. Um, and so, you know, these are all part of our legal and political debate right now. It's not just uh, dead history from 150 uh, years ago. And that trickles down to state law, federal law, local law, and how these constitutional principles are or are not being enforced. And, you know, that what under the new administration, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with these uh, constitutional principles. 
Okay, well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. My pleasure. I'm very happy to talk about these issues, and, uh, you know, thanks for inviting me.